episode 26, Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today we're talking critical incident response. What is your responsibility as a general patrol officer all the way up to an incident commander? Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey there, welcome to Tactical Breakdown. If this is your first time being here, welcome. We're excited to have you. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. We appreciate the love and support. I want to start off today's episode with a few major announcements. First and foremost, we have partnered up with Caliber Press for the Instructors Roundtable. If you're here listening to this podcast, that means you already know that Caliber Press has been leading the way in law enforcement training for the last 40 years, and we are honored and excited to be able to pair up with them to deliver you guys this Instructors Roundtable moving forward. The next Instructors Roundtable is going to be on Thursday, February 27th at 1800 Central. We're going to be doing them every single month, the last Thursday of the month at 1800 Central to keep it nice and consistent for you. Round two coming up this month is all about officer-involved shootings. We're going to be releasing the list of our panel very soon, so stay tuned for that. In addition, coming up in March, we have the ILEDA Conference. The International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association is putting on their annual conference and expo. That's going to be in St. Louis, Missouri, the 23rd to the 28th of March. Make sure to come check us out. We're going to be down there with a booth, and you can stop by. You can do interviews with us. We're going to be giving away some swag from our sponsors. All in all, really exciting that we're going to be able to get down there and meet you face-to-face. Right on. So let me introduce to you my guest for this episode, Scott Savage. If you already listened to the Instructor's Roundtable, the one we put out in January on use of force and defensive tactics, Scott was on the panel. I can't say enough good things about Scott, but to give you a little bit of his background, he's been in law enforcement for over 20 years. He's an active sergeant and has filled roles in SWAT, counterterrorism, intelligence task force. He's led negotiation teams. He's been a field trainer, academy instructor, and an incident commander and field supervisor within his department. Scott has taken his knowledge, his experience, and his passion for teaching and instructing, and he founded the Savage Training Group. It's an organization made up of expert instructors who provide advanced training for law enforcement officers. If you haven't already checked them out, go to savagetraininggroup.com. You can get all the information about Scott and what that company does. It is next level. Make sure you check them out. All right, like I said at the beginning, today's episode is all about critical incident response. What are the roles and responsibilities right from the patrol officer responding to the call, to follow-up units, to the incident commander, beginning, middle, and end? what considerations need to be made during the call. And Scott's going to share with you some examples of some call-outs that they've had and uh, and how those were handled. So, so let's jump right into this episode with Scott Savage. Here we go. Scott, my man, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm glad we could cut some time out for this. We were talking, and I know you have listened to some of our past episodes about critical incidents. And a lot of the times, um, sometimes in the past episodes, what I've had when we talk about critical incidents is we get into stress management, peer support, those types of things. And today we're going to do something different. We're going to take it the complete opposite direction with you, and we're going to break it down. We're going to actually go into some of the tactics that are used in the field by the officers um, and the officers in charge. So we're going to talk about things like barricaded suspects, uh, active shooters, but more importantly, decision-making, um, both on the officer side and on like the sergeant or OIC side. So you've got 20 years plus in policing. What is your experience responding to these types of calls? Well, it's a lot, um, but I would, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, about the training that I've gotten or received and the training I didn't get. And I think you're, you know, a lot of the listeners would be amazed, shocked, probably disappointed at some of the, the state of police training, you know, across the nation. I've been a cop for 20 years in California 
in the San Francisco Bay Area. And and California is a high-profile place to be a cop. It's constantly on the news um, for good or bad. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking back to myself about when I first got promoted to sergeant, <clears throat> I thought to myself, okay, you've been promoted to sergeant and now they're going to send you to a sergeanty school of some kind where you're going to learn how to run all the, um, you know, the hot calls, the in-progress incidents, the uh, fleeing suspects, the barricades, all that, that sort of thing. Um, it's not that we weren't responding to those things already or that I didn't have some some knowledge and some training in it, but I thought, well, certainly once you get promoted to sergeant, that first line supervisor, uh, there's going to be, you know, some really squared away course that that the officers go to now that they become a formal leader. And here in California, you know, you attend a two week long supervisor course. That's what it's called. Supervisor course, state mandated. I think it's within a year of being promoted to sergeant here in California. You are required to attend this course. In this course, uh, we learned about things like uh, Generation X and Generation Y and how people learn and how to deliver an employee evaluation to the grumpy old cop, you know, and how do you deal with that grumpy old cop and briefing. And um, at one point, uh, we sat down and the instructors pulled out boxes of arts and crafts and had us build a castle, but, but I didn't build it. I told other people how to build it. And they said, see, that's you're you're leading by doing that. And at the end of this two weeks, you know, these are, these are grown men and women who just got promoted to sergeant. This is the, this is the creme de la creme of the state, you know, and, and these are, these are highly educated squared away people. And, and we're building castles with uh, arts and crafts. Like I might give to my little nieces to, to play with. And it, it struck me in that 80 hours that we talked about responding to critical incidents for four hours in that whole 80 hour thing. And that included a break, you know, and uh, it just, it really resonated with me that, gosh, if you didn't have any previous experience, if you hadn't been on the SWAT team, if you hadn't been, you know, going to these types of calls or paying attention or, or doing the reading or uh, getting the training yourself, this is what you would be trained and and now you can go forth and conquer. And I was thinking about, man, like all these uh, new sergeants are going to hit the street and whatever call comes out over the radio, then the following night when, the, when they get back to work, they're responsible for running that. You know, if it's the wee hours of the night, they could be the highest ranking police official. And this is the level of training that we've given these folks it's no wonder incidents go wrong. <laughs> it's no wonder you see officers and supervisors making um, bad decisions. So it's really been a focus of mine um, since then to, to try to um, find or create the best possible training uh, for law enforcement officers that deals with, like you said, decision-making. Um, Cause as we talk tactics, you know, it's, it's really easy to teach an officer how to do something such as, you know, how to strike a baton, how to chase a car, how to break down a door, how to conduct a, uh, a room entry. Those are not that difficult, those manipulative skills. The magic really comes with knowing when to employ those skills, right? When to strike someone with a baton, when to chase a car, when to make entry, and more importantly, when not, when not to do it. So that I think is where the the magic comes in police tactical training. And, and uh, I think if the public knew um, the the kind of the the current state of law enforcement training as a whole, they would be unimpressed. Um, There's constantly a call for police officers to get more training, right? Cops need need more training. We got to, they need more training. And I think, you know, we get more training every year. Every year we water down what a law enforcement officer does um, as they become responsible for more and more and more things from mental health response to terrorism response to um, advanced first aid concepts to uh, looking out for human trafficking to it is amazing all the different um, things we want officers to do. We've watered it down and I can tell you firsthand from doing this for a very long time the training that is out there is just that it's training. It's a lot of check the box types of things. Um, some of it is online. You know, we all, no matter what profession you've in, you've sat through an online course where you've had to click through the boxes 
to get to the test and then you can get your little certificate for whatever it was. A lot of it is that kind of thing. And it is technically training. I would agree with that. But what it's not is learning. There's no learning that has occurred there. And that's why we see some of the problems we do you know, today in law enforcement. Essentially, what I'm hearing you say is that we have officers that are being trained as sergeants and they could be from all over the state and they could come from different units, all different levels of experience. And sometimes you're going to get those ones that have had all of the types of experience because they're in a very active and violent area. But sometimes you're going to have officers that have never responded to a barricaded suspect or responded to an active shooter. And in those instances, what you're saying happens is those sergeants may be the senior person who's on duty at the time of a call. Maybe it's four in the morning and now they're OIC in charge of a call and have no experience or no knowledge on, on what to do at that call. And not even like a, a cursory academic understanding of tactics to be used uh, because that's not covered in the training. So that's, that's really the the crux of what you were getting at. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And you know, it's there's a difference between training. Just think of that word. There's the the tr- the average training that you know. In this example that I'm using, a California law enforcement sergeant, brand new supervisor, gets. There's a difference between that training and learning, where their learning occurred, and proficiency, and experience. Those are are all a lot of variables. So while there may be you know, an hour or two of training in this sort of basic uh, supervisor class that new newly promoted supervisors go to. Did learning even occur because there was no test? Did are those people proficient? Because I, I can tell you what was presented to us would be completely insufficient to adequately handle critical incidents. So did that new sergeant gain um, experience and training and knowledge through some other class or personal experience? Are they proficient at it? Do they have experiences of their own to draw back on? Or uh, my fear is, you know, imagine a, uh, an officer, you know, they worked in a slow area or they, um, they worked in an assignment that didn't lend itself to field tactics. And now they've been promoted uh, because they're, you know, qualified for the position and now they're tasked with running in progress incidents, making decisions about go, don't go, turn left, turn right, send the officers here, send the officers there. Um, decisions that can literally cost you know people's lives. And if all they're relying on is the basic, the most basic training that that the state says you kind of have to have, you, they would be woefully uh, unprepared. It's kind of like then another way of saying it is a uh, a supervisor is not a supervisor is not a supervisor. An officer is not an officer is not an officer. Seeing, uh, you know, when people say the police did this, the police did that. So no, that specific officer did that. You've got to realize that we all wear a similar looking uniform and that's where a lot of the similarities stop. Their individual experiences, their proficiency, their knowledge, you know, whether they've done the reading, whether they've sought out training on their own. Those are a a lot of variables and it's not very consistent. When we talk about training in this context, to me, it seems like the training portion when people are in class and learning, that's the how. That's learning the how we do something, right? You go to your DT class, this is how we use a baton. You go to your firearms class, this is how we use our firearm effectively. You go to a leadership class, this is how you lead people. But what's missing is the when and the why. And in my experience, that when and why comes from like just being there and doing it. And it usually comes from those senior officers that have dealt with the incidents before. And I draw reference to obviously my time in the military. And when you have a junior officer or when you're a junior officer and you take control of a platoon for the first time, you don't have any of that knowledge. You don't have deployments. You don't know all of those ins and outs of the when and the why. So what they do is they pair you with a senior NCO and that senior NCO has 25, 30 years of experience. And they're there to guide that junior officer on some of the stuff that they may have no clue on, right? Not just the academics, but the the timing, the efficiency of all the different 
pieces that have to fall into place on any given call. Now, when we're talking about sergeants responding to calls and they're brand new, they've just come out of their sergeant's training and they're not awarded that, you know, they don't have that backup where they have somebody who's had 20 years of experience and responded to 40 or 50 of these types of calls. They may be showing up and there's five officers there that are have been on the force for three years or less and have never experienced it before. And now you have kind of the blind leading the blind in a very stressful event. Is that what you're finding um, in your area? Yeah, I think it, that's... I think that's true. And I would agree with most everything you said. I, the only thing I would maybe change is that I think in the classroom setting, in a didactic setting, in a just a training setting, I think we can teach uh, the whys and the hows uh, and the um, whens. So I don't think, you know, it's, we can teach the manipulative skills about, okay, do this, do this. And that's really like a basic police academy. That's a lot of what happens there is you're learning manipulative skills. Here's how to drive the car. Here's how to hit, use the baton. Here's how to, you know, interview somebody. But the next level, sort of the advanced, you know, thing that we need to do for law enforcement officers is teach them when to use those skills, right? And why. And as you progress up in rank, certainly as a supervisor, but as you, you know, continue to get more proficient at the job, more experience and your your authority levels are raising, whether formally or informally, I think that why is the key. That, that why is the key to everything, right? And I think we can, um, it can be, if, if you don't get the experience in the field, you don't have the experience of just going to incidents over and over and over again and starting to recognize those commonalities, right? That's what, uh, if you read the book um, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about why can experienced people make decisions quicker than inexperienced people. We all agree that they can probably do that, but why Why specifically is it? And he broke it down and says, because experienced people use thin slicing. Experienced people look at the same uh, situation that an inexperienced person does, but they're actually just looking at little bits of data. Whereas the inexperienced person has to take everything in. The time of day, the freaking weather, the the location, the what's this guy saying? What's happening over here? The experienced person goes, none of that's really relevant to the decision I'm going to make in a second. I'm just going to pick out this and this and this, those little points of data and go, oh, this is the barricaded suspect. And furthermore, I know, and in these types of incidents, these are the tactics that have worked well. And these are the tactics that didn't work well the last 20 times I screwed this thing up. That's how they're able to, to quickly process and make decisions and information. And I think what we can do better as a profession in law enforcement is give the uh, decision makers who are going to be on scene. I'm talking that first line supervisor or those senior officers who are going to act as an OIC. Give them a handful of concepts to use that will be the most effective and the most number of types of incidents. Right. So we, we're we not going to, you know, make you perfect at every incident. That's impossible. But here's probably the five top types of things you're going to go to. Fleeing suspect, a barricaded or an isolated subject, somebody who's doing bad things in a bad place. You know, he's in his house, he's got a gun or whatever, and just a, a, maybe an active shooter, an active killer. If you could be proficient in recognizing the triggers that would say, yep, this is the active shooter or yep, this is the the criminal barricade or yep, this is the non-criminal barricade, right? That suicidal dude inside of his house hasn't committed a crime, but he's armed. If we can teach you how to recognize those and here's the concepts to respond to this, right? Get containment, get eyes on the structure, uh, stage a react team. It's able to handle an emergency if it develops. If we can just kind of get people to see things like that, maybe some uh, SOPs, you know, which a lot of times don't exist in law enforcement for a lot of agencies, um, I think we'd be ahead of the curve because it's not the manipulative skills, in my opinion, it's not the manipulative skills that are lacking. We train a lot in there. Now we could certainly argue we need to do a better job of training that. Um, it's not a, you know, we our uh, defensive tactics training, for instance, is if people saw the way, the, generally speaking, law enforcement officers are trained, you know, in defensive tactics, I think they'd be pretty surprised and they'd be underwhelmed. Um, the same can be said with firearms training. You know, a lot of agencies qualify four times a year, um, and there's some that do it less than that. You know, and if that's all the shooting you're doing in a year, you just shot that gun twice a year. Uh, I don't know about you, Adam, but I, I'm not going to be good at anything I only do twice a year. 
guaranteed. You know what I mean? That's why if I'm going to you know, make the turkey for Thanksgiving, I'm probably going to screw it up. Why? I only do it once a year. If that's the only time I cook, you know, I don't, I don't cook the rest of the year, but Thanksgiving comes around. Hey, everyone, I'm going to cook. I'm probably going to screw it all up uh, versus staying proficient at something at, at skills and, and realizing why we're doing something. And um, so I think uh, when it comes to police training, you'll often hear in the media and, and uh, police protesters will say, you know, cops need more training in X, Y, and Z. And I always think to myself, it's not that we need more. More is probably not the issue. It's better. And instead of looking at what did we train the officers in, let's look at what are they actually learning? Uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience, maybe in the military or not, but a lot of the quote unquote training we go to is just check the box kind of stuff. It's really just to say that, Hey man, we trained you, you know, we sent you to that class. So now you're responsible for it. Or we, you watch this two hour online course about X. Now you're, you're, you're trained, you're good. And that's not, come on, that's not learning. Really interesting. First off, um, next year, remind me, I will come down, see you, and I'll cook you your turkey for Thanksgiving. You don't have to worry about it. I'll blow your mind. And I only do it once a year. So I don't have any deteriorating. Thank you. And my wife. Yeah, no problem. So we'll set that up. We'll talk. We'll talk (laughs) offline after the call. Um, But what I keyed in on there is what you're saying is we're kind of training these officers. We're giving them, it's almost like we're giving them 50 pounds of shit to stuff into a five pound bag. Um, And there's just so much, so much new training that has to come out and is getting rolled out because of things that are happening now with, uh, with the media or with certain political parties or with um, incidents that happen, right? Something happens and it's like, Oh, we have to invent some type of training block for this so that we, you know, we reduce our liability and the, you know, nobody comes down on us for it. And we're starting to turn our, all the officers into kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, rather than focus on the people that really, really good at specializing and are very, very good at certain things. Now, I don't you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me it used to be that the people that were really, really good at something would stay in that role for a very long time, maybe their whole career, right? You get onto the team's and you may be on that team for 15 years because you're not leaving until you retire because you're you're so efficient at what you do it doesn't make sense to roll you out into something else is that am i am i tracking on the right line here or, or do you have a different opinion no it is um it generally you know if someone's really really good at a specific task yeah and especially a high liability task canine swat something like that we really want you to be in that position for a long period of time and develop that expertise. Um, but here's, you know, again, here's two realities of how law enforcement uh, agencies really work. A, a lot of people who stay in assignments for years and years and years, there's no retesting of that person. There's no hard look to see, are they still a good fit? And that's why we have, oh gosh, you know, this guy's been a field training officer for 10 years and he's just, you know, he's collecting the paycheck, but he's not doing a good job. It's because there's no exam to say, there's no you know, real deep dive assessment and how proficient or how, um, you know, how, what's the efficacy of this guy? Is this guy doing a great job? Um, the other thing is a lot of times we, people switch assignments based on kind of career development, right? You do this assignment for a few years and then you max out and then we got to go back to patrol and then let's give someone else a try. The thought process often with law enforcement operations is not who's most qualified. It's not uh, who would best serve in this position and continue to serve the community, keep the community safe. It's, well, we got to give someone else a try now. You you did your three years, so now you got to get out. So we don't, you know, as law enforcement, we don't always look at what's what's going to make us the, the best as our agency, what's going to put our best foot forward. Um, sometimes there's these artificial sorts of things and it's like, Hey, someone else gets a try now, you know? And I, again, I think if the public knew that it's like, what? Yeah. We constantly have brand new people in assignments, you know, that are learning, they're learning. And maybe, maybe that's why we see, um, you know, some of the mistakes we do, but I think there needs to be, uh, in law enforcement operations, a focus on realism, a focus on, uh, making sure the training that we're, we're giving officers, is setting them up to be uh, successful, but proficient, you know, really proficient, not just thinking they're proficient. 
I'll give you an example. This uh, your listeners might find this interesting, and they can just kind of think for themselves. Okay, wh- what what would you recommend the police do? This is a real incident that happened a few months ago. Um, get a call. It's about ten o'clock at night, and the caller says, "I just shot my mom, and she's still alive, and I'm gonna. I'm thinking of shooting her again." And this is the address I'm calling from. And he gives uh, an address in the jurisdiction that we work. Of course, the bells and whistles go off. This is kind of like sounding like the big one. And it is. Doesn't matter where you work. That would be a a crazy uh, crisis type of incident. So I just shot my mom. She's still alive. And here's the address I'm calling from. And he stays um, on the phone. And the officers are responding. If you think to yourself right now, what should the officers do? Let's say there's 10 cops responding to this call, which there was. There's a supervisor and there's 10 you know, officers responding to the call. What should we do first? Should we, A, you know, surround the house? Should we get an officer maybe in front of the house to, to tell us if he sees anything? Should we get a bunch of officers to the front of the house, you know, getting ready to go save that woman? She's Jesus. She's been shot. Um, Should we stay back from the house so we don't um, escalate the situation? What if, what if he sees us and us, you know, being there is what kicks him off shooting her again. Um, How will we know how bad she's shot? How can we get in it? Cause was she shot in the toe or was she shot like in the femoral artery? Oh, that, that's a crazy one. What should the role of the first arriving officer be versus the third, the fifth, the 10th? You know, should, what if this guy, you know, it could only be worse. He shot one person. What if he gets out the back door and just hops that back fence and, and now he's in the neighborhood. Now we don't even know where he is anymore. Like what could be worse than a guy who shot someone inside one house, a guy who's running through the neighborhood who could shoot a lot of people and we don't even presently know where he's at. What should the first arriving supervisor do? Should they kind of take control of the responding officers or just kind of let them, you know, figure it out? They're all smart people. These are uh, like crazy questions I know. So we respond to the call um, and we made the decision to the first thing is late at night. The first thing we wanted to do was kind of get eyes on the front of the house to see if we could develop you know, any uh, real-time intelligence. And as we were doing that, we simultaneously surrounded the house to prevent escape. As we were doing that, we also started staging a react team, some officers armed with lethal and less lethal weapons and a way to get in the house, you know, a, uh, a ram. And next we, once we kind of had a little bit of what we considered incident stabilization, right? We, we kind of thought we had the pieces in place where it can't get any worse. And if it did get any worse, we had a kind of an app for that. You know, we had a plan for that. Um, if he tried to run out the back, the containment guys will get him. If he tries to, you know, take some further action, the, the guy with the eyes on the front of the house would see him. If he tries to harm the hostage, the React team can hopefully uh, try to get in there and, and prevent further harm. What if I told you right now that this call was a fake call? What if I told you right now that the person who made that call was in a different state. They were in, uh, across the country. They had looked up this person's uh, address online and they had called our non-emergency number, which our dispatchers didn't let us know. And they had made what's called a swatting call. Have you heard of that? It's like a prank, um, prank call to try to get a bunch of resources to someone's house. This is a prank. And they called out the correct address in the town that I work. And we sent, you know, an army of officers over there. And there was, in fact, a family inside that house who had no idea what was happening. Right? So they, I mean, they they didn't make this call. This is an innocent family. And as we started looking at the details on the call, there was no premise history at the house, meaning there was no previous time we'd been to this house the name he had given didn't match the name that we had in our records management system as being the, the people who own that home. And right as we're about figuring this out, the male, uh, the dad who lives in that house kind of heard a commotion outside because we weren't as quiet as we thought we were. 
and he came out. He walked out the side door. And can you imagine what would have happened if this guy would have stuck his hands in his pockets? Or worse, he had been a, uh, let's say he was a, 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 a armed citizen who legally, you know, owns a firearm. And he thought, you know, his house was being surrounded by bad guys. And he came out to see what was going on. And he had a gun in his hand. That would have immediately confirmed the bias that the young officers we staged around this house had, that this was a hostage incident, and they would have taken action. It's those types of incidents that recur regularly. And it's those types of incidents that you can just see um, the tremendous gravity that happens when these types of calls come out. And you can imagine all the things that could have gone wrong right there. And I like to tell uh, officers, especially new supervisors, imagine that was your house. You know, Adam, that was your place. I look up Adam on the internet. I look up his his uh, address. I call his local, you know, agency in Canada. And I say, hey, my name's Adam. I just shot my mom. And, uh, you know, I wait a few minutes. Hey, is, are the cops there? Okay, so the cops are on scene. Great. I'm going to give you a countdown and I'm going to start shooting. Here I go. 10, 9. The local agency around Adam's house goes, hey, he's giving us a countdown. Do they bust through Adam's door to go quote unquote, save the hostage. Meanwhile, there's freaking Adam. Who's got at least one gun in his house, if not a million, you know, and, and they see Adam who's who rightfully, here's the door being broken down. Right. You can, you can just see all the problems, all the pitfalls that come into this when we respond to critical incidents and how difficult and challenging it is to recognize what's going on. Hey man, this is a swatting call. This is a, you know, he's calling on a non-emergency line. We have no premise history that matches that. We have no other neighbors calling saying they heard a shot, you know, stand by. This is a possible swatting call. Everyone, you know, use extreme caution because we might have a homeowner, innocent person walking out trying to see what's going on. So I think once we start looking at uh, these types of incidents, it's easy to, to, uh, to see, you know, the kind of training, <laughs> intensive training we need to give cops. And, and I'm all for, for training cops to do all the wonderful things that people want us to do, you know, watch out for this, look at that, um, community outreach, all those things are important, but I think we should focus on the things that are going to get people hurt, you know, where life and death could literally hang in the balance. I really think that needs to be our focus of, uh, so we can prevent undue harm to people. Absolutely. I want to, track back on this one incident that you gave um, and kind of in the context of what we had talked about earlier, which was, you know, these new sergeants or a, a new, an officer who's an OIC who hasn't dealt with these situations before. What advice would you give to those newly minted sergeants when they respond to a call like this? Would it be make sure that you have, you know, the correct intelligence before making your decision? Um, like what, where would you, on your list of priorities, what would you, what would you tell that person when they respond to these calls? I would tell them uh, the time to prepare for this call has passed, unfortunately. And if we could go back in time, it is time to seek out training and do the reading that, you know, if we can go back in time and we can get a time machine, that's what my first recommendation would be to do is go back one day Get the proper training on your own. Don't wait for your agency to send it to you because it all exists out there. Do the reading in the law enforcement trade publications, in the law enforcement textbooks, in the, you know, there's a, there's so much information out there about these types and other incidents. Get you all the, the reading that you can do on it. If you look at, um, there's a guy named General Mad Dog Mattis. He's a, just a famous, you know, American Army, uh, excuse me, American Marine Corps general. And he talks about, he's got this great quote that says, um, he knew every time that he went up against the enemy, he knew how to outsmart them because he's done the reading. You know, that was his quote. He's like, I've read about, you know, this Napoleonic war or this, you know, this ancient battle in Greece. And I knew what the, the generals had done there because <clears throat> the situations and the tactics were really haven't changed all that much. So he, he quoted, he, uh, credited doing the reading with knowing how to outsmart these people. But since the time machine doesn't exist, I would tell uh, that newly arriving OIC or sergeant to this this type of incident is to take control. First of all, don't let for the, hey, let's just wait and see what happens. When you get promoted, 
to OIC or to a sergeant, you have lost the luxury of not leading. That luxury that you had as an officer where you could choose to kind of lead or maybe not that day, that luxury has passed by. So it is up to you to take control. And I can tell you in this situation where we're going into this, you know, supposed person's been shot and this, this hostage incident with this dramatic call, some of the most dangerous things that are occurring on that call is our police officers, you know, and I don't say that lightly and, and I, no disrespect to any officers, but I, being one of them know that we are about to deliver, you know, armed, highly motivated, highly assertive, you know, police officers to your front door and all kinds of stuff can happen. So one of the first things I did when we were responding to this call is try to take control of the responding officers. We'll flesh out the details and we will, we'll figure out exactly what's going on. But the worst thing we could do in that situation is have some young motivated cop with a rifle park two houses down from the uh, address because he thinks that's tactical and then get out in front of the house with his gun pointed at the house, you know, looking for work. That can actually be some of the most dangerous things we can do in that situation. And, and, but to the untrained eye, to the naive eye, you know, a, an inexperienced police OIC or supervisor is going to look at that call and go, we got to get there. We got to get, you know, we got to get in there. It's like, yeah, but in this situation, you can see where that would have been deadly. You know, if we had just run in, bust down the door, subscribe to this hero complex that we train police officers, you've got to do something. You are the world's problem solvers. You can, you know, win any fight, all that stuff that we train cops to do. Um, you can see in that situation be deadly. And it's not to say, you know, we want to, uh, time is always on our side or we got to slow everything down or we want to wait, wait, wait. No, in an active shooter, that would be exactly the wrong thing to do. But um, when an OIC is responding to this type of call or any type of call, uh, think of the concepts, right, versus specific tactics. Get control. Assume command. Try to seek containment or stabilization. Flush out the intel. But, uh, you know, if we wait, if we're just going to spend five minutes flushing out all the intelligence, you know, and I work in a busy urban area where there's, you know, we're we're on scene with just a few minutes. So if you're in a rural area, kind of, you know, do the math in your head. But if we're going to, you know, wait five minutes to flush out the details on this type of call, meanwhile, all those cops have arrived and they've all kind of taken their own positions and they may have their own plans and they're going to kind of do their own thing. That could be dangerous because a lot of the times when we self-deploy, especially our young motivated officers, they're not sitting around waiting for someone to tell them what to do. They're doing it. And a lot of times they're not in harmony with each other, right? Mm -hmm been a cop for 20 years. I've never arrived on a scene where there's a bunch of other cops standing around going, what should we do? We need direction. We don't know what to screw that man. Every cop knows the best thing to do. Just ask. Them. Yeah. You know, every cop, you know, maybe the same in the military. I don't know, but it's, it's, we, um, especially as you start becoming a YC or a supervisor, you really want to take control of that. And if we can get to the point of stabilization, meaning we have containment, we're starting to flush out what it is. And I have my little emergency plans in place. I got my react team. I got my observation guy. I've got my containment team. And those are all kind of in place. I can maybe go, ah, okay, this can't get any worse. And if it does, we have a plan for that. Now I can start flushing out the details. And if I was going to teach, you know, new OICs or new supervisors, one tactic, and I, you know, I just had five minutes with them. I would teach them this. It would be a CPR, you know, CPR saves lives, but so does CPR by this. I mean, contain point react, not cardiopulmonary resuscitation, mm -hmm. contain point react. You can remember it because we can all remember CPR saves lives. So just remember CPR contain point react, seek containment. So the problem, the guy can't go mobile or he can't get any, you know, escape. Point being a point guy, a person across the street from the house reporting on what they're seeing. Okay, I, you know, hey, radio, I, I'm on scene. I'm assuming point. Uh, the front door is closed. Uh, the lights are off, or I see the suspect. He's outside. He's got a baseball bat. Whatever, just reporting their findings. It's your your observation person that's feeding information to the rest of the officers and to the the OIC. And then R is react. And the reason we call uh, a REACT team REACT and not a crisis entry team, not an arrest team, not some other team, is we don't want to prime those officers on what they're going to do. 
if I if I say, hey, hey, Adam, you're on the crisis entry team, what does that tell you you're going to be doing? Entry. Making, <laughs> exactly. So we want to just prime the officers for something good, which is you're going to react, right? You're going to read the play. You're, if the guy wants to walk out and surrender, you will arrest him. If this goes to an active killer and we need to make immediate crisis entry, you'll be responsible for that. So CPR, contain point react, is if I only had a, you know just a handful of minutes with a new supervisor, learn that tactic and that will that will get you pretty far in a lot of different incidences, right? Um, we had a call one time the, at the local mall, a security guard sees a, a car out in the back part of a, a, a desolate parking lot at a mall and there's a man sitting in there with a shotgun in his hands. And the security guard saw him and he kind of got out of there and called the cops. Well, what do we do? You know, what are all the different things that could be, right? That could be a, a suicidal person. That could be a, a guy who's about to be an active shooter. He's getting ready to go in the mall. It could be any number of things. It could be some cop who's uh, on a raid team and they're, that's where they're going to meet. And he's not being too uh, cognizant of the fact that he's he's shown that his weapon already to someone. It happens, unfortunately. Uh, but how can we deal with that? You know, CPR, contain it. Make sure that car can't go mobile or leave. Point. Get somebody to, to see, okay, I see him. This is what I, you know, maybe with binoculars or something. It looks like he's doing this. looks like he's doing that. And then a react team to respond to that. So hope that's helpful. That maybe like a little takeaway that the listeners can grab and go, hey, I'm going to put that in my bag of tricks. Definitely. I love it. I love, uh, I love that it's an acronym. I love that it's short and sweet. Um, it draws me back when you were talking about like explaining the the point person draws me back to military training with uh, the OODA loop observe orient decide and act right um right. in your critical thinking um and but one last thing i wanted to to touch on quick because i had a question when you gave me that example and and this is the question more on a very specific tactical type of way when you receive a call that there's been um a shooting or a call just like that, someone's been shot. When you show up and you don't have any intelligence, you don't have eyes on, is the is the is the assumption that is made is that that person is deceased versus that person is still alive and we have to try to preserve life? What is the default? The default assumption is they're still alive, and um, it, police officers, especially in California, aren't trained to pronounce death anyway. They're trained to determine death, and they can only really do that in these very specific situations, like like they're missing a head. Yeah, yeah, decapitation. That'll be a good one. <laughs> if you have to do CPR on someone, and you're doing respirations over there, but your partner's doing compressions way over there because it's not connected anymore. Yeah, you can go ahead and call that guy dead. Um, but you know, the the assumption, the default is that there's still a viable um, life there until proven otherwise, and um, you know, how we figure that out though, can be, you know, tricky. If someone's in a house and it's a true hostage incident, we're not going to just, uh, immediately bang down the door to go try to, uh, affect some rescue. And here's the reason, uh, conducting a hostage rescue, an actual hostage rescue is an extremely complex thing to do. I've never been involved with one, but I've talked to people who have, and I've research this and the people who have done uh, an actual hostage rescue have said it is some of the most complex things they've ever had to do. For instance, you know, you would have to a make a positive breach, get through whatever barricade is in front of you and the hostage. You would have to be uh, cause some sort of distraction to draw the uh, hostage taker away from your entry point or overwhelm them in some fashion. Otherwise, then when they hear you banging down the door, they'll just shoot the hostage. C or three, you're going to have to access the hostage or the hostage taker within just a few seconds to try to neutralize the threat. Um, for the average municipal SWAT team in California, that would be a, a, a really high bar, right? The average team, because your average teams are probably, you know, a, a handful of guys that work at an agency with, you know, I think the average police agency in California is like, 20 officers, something like that. This is not LAPD and LA uh, Sheriff's Department. I'm talking just your your average team. That would be a big, uh, a tough uh, lift for them. Can you imagine if a bunch of just average patrol officers 
who have not been trained in hostage rescue tactics, who do not train regularly in those tactics, had to somehow come together and affect some kind of rescue, you know, break down the door, cause the distraction, access the hot. Uh, you can see how challenging that would be. So if we get a call of someone injured, we're going to try to flush out the data. And if it's in a barricade situation with a hostage, we're going to try to surround it, set containment, get point, set react, and then try to flush out intelligence and try to make contact with the hostage taker or a person inside. And our negotiators will uh, listen for clues. Uh, they'll ask, obviously, to speak with the hostage or try to get the hostage on the line. We can try to geolocate the hostage's phone uh, by pinging their phone to see their actual location. We can try texting that number, right, to see if we can get any kind of response back. We can have the officers on the containment positions feed us information. We hear two people talking. We hear one person talking. We just heard a scream. We just heard a loud uh, sound that sounded like a shot. There's lots of different ways we can start gathering um, data on that person. But to answer your question specifically, the default is always, this is a live person. So we're going to obviously rush, you know, to the scene and rush to try to rescue them if we can um, until we've, you know, proven otherwise. It just seems to me like that would, would or could cause um, a more rushed or premature action on the side of the officers responding to the call. So that was why I was just uh, was curious about that. So I was, thank you for uh, explaining that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's important. Um, as law enforcement officers, we train young cops in the academy uh, to be uh, to be heroes, right? They, they develop this kind of hero complex and they think they've got to save everyone. Um, and they use the, those types of words. I have to, I got to, it's uh, you know, it's a duty. And if I don't, I'm going to be liable. And they start uh, reading in a lot to the things they're training in. Some of the most difficult challenges we have when we're training experienced officers who then become supervisors is getting them to embrace all the things that they don't have to do is getting them to understand uh, the difference between a feeling of a moral obligation to take some action and the actual true legal uh, duty to take some kind of action. And it's not that I want to recommend, hey, officers, don't don't take any actions because you don't legally have to. But it's more that I like teaching officers what you have to do and what you don't have to do because it leads to clearer decision making. Can I give you like a, an example of that? Please do. Um we, uh, in an active shooter situation, and this is, this is one that kind of tugs on people's heartstrings, but it's really illustrative. Let's say the officers are responding to a school where there's been a shooting and it's still going on. There's a crazy person inside a school and they're shooting up the place. The question that we'll, um, pose to, to officers in some of the training that we do is, is there a legal, uh, mandate that you have to make immediate entry and go, you know, deal with the shooter and save people. And by and large, people will say, yes, you have a duty to do that. And in California, I, you know, I can't speak for every state, but certainly in California, I will say, okay, can you point me to that law, that penal code, that government code, that, uh, you know, that state code, point me to the law that says you have to do it. And then have you heard of any officers maybe being sued for, for not having to do it and they can't come up with uh with those answers and the yeah, truth of the, go ahead go ahead no i was just going to say it's that's the old um the old adage of unlimited liability right which only exists um usually in the in the armed forces so yeah it's it's the difference between knowing what you have to do and what you legally feel you you should do or you, you morally feel obligated to do those are two different things. And again, I'm not saying let's not make entry and go deal with the shooter. Let's 100% do that. But let's know what we have to do and what we don't. In California, there's no such law that says we have to provide police protection to any individual. Rather, the police are set up to provide police protection and service to the entire population. We don't have a, a special individual duty to one person. Okay. Now, people, uh, when liability does attach is when we create something called a special relationship. And that's a, 
I think a nationwide legal doctrine that says, you know, if you if certain things are met and you trigger certain legal obligations, then yes, you actually do have a duty to protect them. And the best way of understanding is that is once we arrest someone and we have them, we are caring for them, mm-hmm. we have them in our custody. If they suffer a medical emergency, we have to render them aid. We have to provide or bring in EMS to assist them. The same is not true if we haven't created that special relationship with them. Then students generally say, well, wait a minute. I heard about this one case in Florida, uh, Broward County SO. Uh, There was a deputy named Scott Peterson. He didn't go in to an active shooter that was occurring at um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I said, well, that's really interesting that you bring that one up. Uh, two things come up to play there. A, he said in his uh, interview, I think it was on Good Morning America or something like that, that he felt, this is his statement at least, he felt it was a, sh- a sniper shooting out, not an active shooter shooting in. And it's true that the shooter did put one round out a window. So, you know, if you take what he says at face value, that I guess could be plausible. Most people don't. Uh, but the second thing is... I, some of the legal authorities that looked in there, uh, cause he was a, he was not only fired, he was arrested. And one of the things they charged him with was child neglect for neglecting to care for children. So some of our students will go, wait a minute, what you're saying can't be true because look, you know, this guy got arrested for that. We say, well, what was the difference though? These were school resource officers and school resource officers are assigned to school districts via contract. The police, municipal police agencies that send their officers to work at these schools have signed contracts with uh, those schools to provide police protection. They've given up the um, the fact of not having any liability or the duty to provide police protection uh, to an individual by essentially assigning a contract saying, I will provide police protection to individuals. So that that's the difference. And you know, this is all a little intellectual and a little heady and a little uh, down in the weeds, but uh, these are the really, you know, important things for police OIC, police supervisors to realize is to have a strong grasp, not only on the tactics, but know things like, when do I have to act and when don't I? Because if I tell you, Adam, we have to do something, well, obviously I've limited your choices. You know, I've, I, you don't have the same freedom that you do to plan and exercise and tactic and outmaneuver or something. Cause I've told you, well, we have to go through the right door. Can't go through the left door. Oh, okay. Versus when you realize I don't have to go through any of those doors. I may choose to go through the door, but I'll do it at a time of my choosing in a way of my choosing with the resources that I want to choose to do it, you know, at the speed that I want to do it. And so really, I think officers uh, and of course, supervisors alike, just realizing what we have to do, what we don't have to do, realizing the difference between a moral obligation and a a true legal obligation would serve those officers very well. Yeah, I don't think it's too heady at all. In fact, I I, I have a question that's generated from that because I'm when you're when you're explaining that scenario, and I'm not familiar with it, so I'm going to have to look it up. But it's it's interesting to me that a civil contract would affect the criminality of an action and that he would be charged criminally for a civil contract. Um, now, I, I'm assuming, uh, well, I know, I'm not assuming. I know laws are obviously different depending on which country you live in. And then especially, it, and it depends varying between province and state and and county and all those types of things. Um, so that, I, that was the one thing that jumped out at me was it's very interesting that a civil contract that he would hold, you know, not unlike a, like a, a private security type contract that that would then make him criminally liable uh, for something. So that's very, very interesting. Yeah, and it is. And, and, you know, if I were the decision makers within the school district and I said, well, wait a minute, we've been, we've been paying the County to provide um, police officers here to provide us police protection. And then, you know, this just tragic incident happens where uh, children were killed. And this officer that we thought was our, you know, security force here didn't go in. You know, I have a problem with that. I I can see their point of view. And, and, you know, this officer was fired and uh, arrested for a variety of things, including child neglect, uh, also perjury and some other stuff. 
Um, but you can see uh, whether he's going to be uh, prosecuted or not, that will be really interesting. Whether that same lawsuit could occur in, in each individual state or different countries would be an, another interesting fact. But um, what a great takeaway just for the officers listening and the the police supervisors to go, woof, you know, the decisions we make have far reaching consequences. What could be a very simple decision, don't go in or go in, uh, can have lasting consequences, not only for people's lives who live or die, but for the individuals making those decisions, whether they continue to be employed, whether they are arrested and charged with crimes. It is very um, obvious from, you know, when you look at those types of incidents, just the, man, we, we've got to be really great decision makers, right? That's the trick, right? It's <laughs> here's the responsibility. Yeah. Now use it correctly. It is. And I think um, as we, you know, continue our conversation, we'll, you and I, I think are, are putting some things out, uh, out there that, that hopefully starts a conversation in individual agencies. Cause I imagine there's cops, um, you know, and different tacticians, and even there's some application probably for the military. There's folks listening now that are going, oh, okay, that, that's kind of an interesting thought. Where are we at, you know, in my little hometown agency or my organization, where are we at with our training? You know, is our training just training or is it training that actually causes learning? What are the, the training needs of my agency? You know, do our, does our um, sort of line level officers and supervisors understand you know, what to do in these sort of the top five or top 10 high risk, low frequency types of incidents we might face, you know, where, where truly is our training at with that stuff? We, you know, we might have a training guy or we have a training program or we, we went to some training classes, but is it effective? Is it the best that's out there? And, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately we look at it and, and it's not. And here's what I'm really excited for is that if you're listening to this and you're wondering like, yeah, that's awesome information, but how am I supposed to, you know, where am I going to get this information? What am I supposed to do? And, and those types of things. Um, Scott has graciously told me that he will field questions and stuff from anybody um, who wants to to get more information on the training. And he actually has his own training company aside from his duties as a, as a law enforcement officer. It's called Savage Training Group. So, uh, Scott, where if somebody wants to get a hold of you, if they want more information about what we've talked about today um, or they want to kind of get more information from you on different types of uh, tactical training and things like that, where can they get a hold of you? Go to our website, savagetraininggroup.com. Um, and it's got a ton of information there. A, there's some articles in there you can read. And <clears throat> a lot of it is about some of the stuff we've talked about today that just kind of is going to go more in depth. Things you might, you know, find are interesting. But I would say uh, come attend, you know, a training class we've got offered specific to tactics and specific to uh, OICs and, and supervisors and just being an officer who might have to deal with these things. Uh, I would sign up for our response tactics for critical incidents and in progress crimes course. That is a long title, but it's a short class. It's an eight-hour class. Right now, we're, we're presenting it all over California, but if you're from an agency outside of California and you'd like us to come to you, uh, we'd love to come there. It, the sunnier, the better. Please have nice weather. and We'll definitely be there. But even if you don't, we'll, we'll still be there. Uh, we'd love to come to you and, and present this course. Uh, it is an eight-hour course that is basically designed to have all the information a patrol officer or supervisor could need when responding to a hot call. It's not going to make you an expert in it, but it's going to give you all the, the kind of the basic tactics you need and the mindset you need. And we're going to introduce you to some places that you can go for further reading and training. And you're going to walk out of that course confident, which is the number one thing we're looking for, right? You're going to walk out of there confident that no matter what call, um, occurs like the next night when you get back to work, you know, kind of a foolproof way to, to respond to that incident. This is why I love what I do. I'm, I'm able to help bridge that gap between agencies and officers all around North America and around the world that want more information on this. So if what, uh, if you are interested in uh, savage training group and what Scott and the guys down there teaching, go check out savagetraininggroup.com. We're going to have all the links to his website, to the resources and everything right on the show notes page. And so, uh, Scott, 
man, I take, I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, I love the conversation. I love that we got deep into the weeds with a lot of this stuff and I'm excited to, uh, to have you back on the show, man. Adam, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate everything you're doing. I am a listener of the show. And so it is awesome to get on the show and, and kind of share some information with your, your audience. And I would love to come back. Well, it is a complete honor to have you, my friend. And the, uh, it's an open invite. Anytime you want, you just let me know and we'll, we'll get you back on then. Thank you, sir. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. All right, that's the episode with Scott Savage. For more information on what Scott's doing with Savage Training Group or to get in touch with him, you can go to the show notes page at thebreakdown.ca forward slash 026 or you can go to the savagetraininggroup.com. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast. If you're finding this actionable and useful, I would love to make sure that you don't miss any episodes that are coming up. So make sure to subscribe to that podcast. If you have a second, leave a rating, leave a review. That'd be awesome as well. Make sure not to miss the next Instructors Roundtable. Again, those are coming at you the last Thursday of every month at 1800 Central. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.